0: America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well,
1: you know. One minute. One minute.
2: Okay. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, Afghanistan to Iraq to Lebanon.
1: War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Oda Oliker, and I am speaking to you, as usual, from Brussels.
2: And I'm Hugh Pope, here in my home studio and up the road in Brussels as well.
1: And with us today, also in Brussels for a change of pace, we could have done this in a studio if they'd let us into the studio, is uh, David van Reibroek. David is a Belgian cultural historian and a prolific author of most recently, *Revolution*, which is about the colonial history of the Netherlands. But before that, Congo, the epic history of a people, which was about the Belgian colonial history, and also of against elections, the case for democracy, alternative approach for how to organize a free and fair political system. He's also author of poetry, and he's a playwright. So welcome, David, and thank you for joining us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: So, your most recent book is Revolusi, and it is about the colonial past of the Netherlands. Now, for me, as a white American, to be talking to you, a white Belgian, Hugh, a white South African by way of the United Kingdom, now living in Belgium, about the colonial past of the Netherlands, are we the right people to have this conversation?
0: Uh, I think that's a very good question. It's at least a question I asked myself very often before embarking upon this book. And to be quite honest, even after embarkment, that question was still lingering on my mind. Like, am I really the one who should be writing this book? I think many people could have written it, and indeed many people have written excellent books on Indonesia and the Dutch colonial rule there. But I thought it was particularly interesting, first of all, as Belgians were a bit of a former colony of the Netherlands as well, Holland has lost in its 200 years of being a kingdom, it has lost territory twice. Once was in 1830 with the independence of Belgium. Second time, more importantly, was after the Second World War with Indonesia becoming independent. But that aside, I think that the independence of Indonesia and the proclamation of that independence in August 45 is more than Dutch history. It's more than European history. It's even more than Indonesian history or Asian history for that matter. I really regret a little bit the tendency to consider colonial history as an exclusively binary dynamic between a colony and a metropole, between a European country and and an overseas territory. What I try to do in this book is to not only look at at the vertical dynamics between colonizer and colonized, but also at the horizontal dynamics. And in that respect, Indonesia is extraordinary because that proclamation, it was the very first country that proclaimed its independence only two days after the end of the Second World War. And it was like the first domino stone that tipped and set in motion quite a number of of other processes. So in that respect, it's more than national history. It's truly global history.
1: So why was Indonesia the country that did that? Why was it first?
0: I think there were a number of parallel evolutions taking place. If you look at the Philippines, if you look at India, these are very much... And there it was mostly by coincidence that Indonesia was first. But what was very important is the sheer size of Indonesia It's not necessarily a country Western media report a lot about, but it is still the fourth biggest country in the world in terms of population after China, India, and the United States. It's a giant country. It was already a very big one in '45 as well. That makes it important. And what really made it important is what happened exactly 10 years after when Sukarno, the then president, the man who had proclaimed the country independent in 45, organized in April 55, the infamous conference of Bandung, the Asia-Africa conference of Bandung. And my book is an attempt to shed light and to emphasize the importance of that conference. It was the first world conference without the West. And that conference set in motion, Bandung is a city on the island of Java, not too far away from Jakarta. Quite a number of countries were represented there. And if you look at the number of inhabitants of global citizens they represented, more than half of the world was represented there. And that conference had long lasting effects on the transformation of the United Nations, the transformation of the Arab world, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, what happened in Ghana, what happened in Egypt, what happened in, in Congo we're talking about the likes of Kwame Nkrumah, Nasser uh, Lumumba, was strongly influenced by what had happened at the Bandung Conference. Even the American civil rights movement is not just something that emerged within the American confines, but people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were referring in admiration to the Conference of Bandung and who felt inspired by it. Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott in '55, kicked off just a few months after the Bandung conference. So it's really, even the origin of the European Union date back as a fearful reaction to what had happened in Bandung and the new dynamic between Asia and Africa that frightened European leaders massively.
1: So having written about Belgian colonialism and Dutch colonialism... What struck you kind of going from one to the other and looking at these histories and looking at these legacies?
0: There are many differences between these two colonialisms, but they do have something in common which is quite important. That is, these are like two tiny countries with a massive, massive colony. So the imbalance between overseas territory and metropolitan surface territory is quite extraordinary. It's like two lightweight countries boxing in the heavyweight class. And I think that explains to a certain extent, on the one hand, in the 19th century, a sense of national pride were small but we play among the big ones. We're considered big because of the overseas territories. And that emotion also explains the difficulty these countries had in letting go of their colonial properties. It explains some of the difficulty of the decolonization
2: movement as well. Indeed. One of the most fascinating parts of your books is the gap you identify between, on the one hand, the brutal reality of colonial regimes, and on the other hand, the lack of knowledge about them in the countries that did the colonizing in the first place. Did your findings contradict how Dutch or Belgian society have framed their colonial legacies? And if they did, what are people saying to you? Have you seen any differences yet in the way the Dutch are reacting to your new portrayal of their rule in Indonesia and the way the Belgians reacted to your history of their past in the Congo?
0: I think in the Netherlands, the book *Revolution* comes more as a shock. Because national identity, even national school curriculums, recent history textbooks for secondary school in the Netherlands, still frame the country's national history from the 17th century onwards through two main concepts, which is democracy and tolerance. And indeed, part of that is essential to understanding Dutch history. But if your first framing about your country are these two high moral values, it becomes a bit hard to shed light on the darker pages of your national past. Now in Belgium, I'm a Belgian myself, I learned a lot about national history in Belgium, but rarely was it presented as an emanation of two noble ideals, such as democracy and tolerance. So there's a sense, the sense of national pride is certainly higher in the Netherlands than it is in this strange country called Belgium. And therefore, the message is harder to get it across. And so people are more surprised. But luckily... There is a younger generation now that has been, it seems like now, that has been awaiting this book and that are receiving it with open arms. And reactions so far has have been actually extremely good, much to my surprise almost. Although the book is pretty severe in terms of not just misbehaviors of Dutch military personnel, of Dutch soldiers during the decolonization war, but especially incredible political myopia on the level of Dutch government and Dutch parliament in the 1940s. My, my my final ordeal is pretty harsh
1: there. How much of all of that is simple racism? I mean, how much of the blindness of the failure to reckon with history over time is just this notion that, you know, some people matter more than others?
0: I think there's a strong undercurrent of racism in there, and it was particularly strong within the colonial society itself, and it even grew stronger as colonization went on. I was always naively, I believed that there was a lot of racism in the 19th century, and then it got better. Actually, it's it's very much the opposite. It gets worse throughout the 1920s, and especially the 1930s. The fascist movement, the Dutch fascist movement, was stronger in the Dutch East Indies than it was in the Netherlands itself. The only party leader who ever visited the overseas territories of Indonesia was the leader of the fascist party. So there is absolutely a very strong undercurrent of racism and even fascism. And even after the Second World War, there perhaps, mentalities have shifted somehow. This is some form of paternalistic idealism. We should help these people to become more autonomous. They're not quite ready for it, but in the
1: meantime, we can help them to… We should help them be like us. Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. That was very much the case. And some people went there with a certain idealism. I interviewed for the book 200 people, most of them above the age of 90. One of my key witnesses died just last week. I think half of my witnesses have died by now. I've been able to do really collecting the last uh, witnesses. Actually, this morning, (laughs) I still got an email from a 91-year-old reader in the Netherlands sharing me his perspective on what he had seen as a child in Indonesia. So I was able to talk to people in their teens and 20s. And now the reactions I get are people who were below the age of 10. So this is where we are now.
2: I have to say, it's one of the delights of your books that you tell history in a really informal, almost conversational way. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little more about how you do it. For your latest book, Revolusi, for instance, you seem to have talked to a really large number of people, some over 90 years old and in very remote areas, not just Indonesia, but also the Netherlands. Then, on the other hand, your big bibliography in Revolusi seems to run to 30 pages or more. And these two inputs must be really difficult to balance as a writer. Which method would you say is more important to you, the oral history or your very diligent reading of the written record? I noticed that for your book on Congo, that one review was saying that the bibliography alone justified the price of the book.
0: I didn't see that review, but it makes me quite happy because I did an awful lot of reading, of course. But for me, the interviews are are key. The oral history is so essential. I know this is international crisis group, but sometimes I felt I was doing a sort of archival variant of Human Rights Watch, go to the terrain and collect testimonies. And I'm an archaeologist by training, which is a form of democratic history writing. It's history from below. Potshirts tell a different story than church archives. Written archives always represent the voice of the elite. And what I try to do is to move beyond the perspectives of the elite, even of the Indonesian elite. You have the archives of military leaders, of officers, of diplomats, of political leaders. But I want to know what a 17-year-old girl felt in 1945 and what she did and why she joined the independence movement, even carrying weapons. And therefore, it's valuable. I'm not the first one to do this. But so much work still had to be done. And it's it's very easy work. I don't understand why so many academics don't do this type of work. You need a paper notebook, you need a ballpoint, and a tourist visa. There's no big deal about it. You just go to villages, you sit down, try to find the oldest person in the village. You speak to an imam, you find who is an elderly witness, and you have a great afternoon together, drinking liters of tea.
2: Yes, and... In your latest book, I found it most extraordinary that you used the dating app Tinder to find interlocutors.
0: Tinder was a useful instrument for me. I mean, I went to Japan as well because Japan occupied Indonesia during the Second World War. I used it both in Indonesia and Japan, but it worked in Japan. Many people are on Tinder. And I was extremely democratic. I made a profile with my picture and I had a text translated into Japanese saying, like, I'm not here for you, but rather for your grandfather or grandmother. (laughs) And I accepted everybody. Male, female, young, old, living nearby, living far off. And it gave me a couple of interesting uh, testimonies uh, that way. It was the fastest way to share my question with a great number of people. Literally a couple of thousand people could read my question. Most people just looked at my picture, but some people also read the text. And and they're wonderful people on Tinder.
1: War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And we are talking to David von Reebrook about his work on colonialism and his research methods, which involve Tinder. I think that's really actually an important lesson in, you know, those, those of you who are doing the app dating, read the profile. Don't just look at the picture. Uh, <laughs> You can avoid avoid terrible, (laughs) terrible mistakes. Read
0: read before Um, you swipe.
1: So I want to actually connect two areas of work you're in because I had a thought when you were speaking just now. You also write about democracy and you make the argument that elections uh, aren't necessarily the best way of getting the right people into positions of leadership, positions of authority. And you kind of, you put forward this idea of rotating jobs in some of these posts that normally would be elected, which is a really interesting idea. But thinking about it from the context of colonialism and decolonialism, is it just one more example of Europeans coming up with clever ideas and then trying to impose them on the rest of the world? Just to be provocative.
0: This is what we've done with elections. There's a new form of evangelization taking place and it's electoral evangelization. When we think that Congo should become democratic or Afghanistan should become democratic, we mean they should hold fair and free elections between inverted commas exactly in the same way as Denmark does it. And if they do it on Sunday, on Monday morning, they will wake up in a Scandinavian rule of law. Obviously, this is not the case.
1: A colleague of mine, when I was in Iraq, right after in 2004, described it as the vote or I'll shoot model of democracy promotion.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been talking to European Democrats who were involved with the democratic transition, the peace process in Congo, and senior diplomats uh, to the level of ambassadors telling me, we told them how to do it. And when they didn't do it the way we wanted it, we just closed the money tap or the resort so it's literally a form of a very conditional aid there. But in the case of the model I defend is a model of lottery-based democracy, which I see as not an alternative of the elections, but as a model that can be used next to it. It's now happening in practice. But that idea of reconceptualizing democracy as a talk among adult citizens is for me very much an idea which I learned in African contexts. So it's perhaps a reverse evangelization. I still think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in the 1990s and la Conférence Nationale Souveraine in Congo, also in the 1990s, at the moment the crisis of the Mobutu regime at the end of the dictatorship, civil society coming together in the parliament for months, trying to construct a new country, I thought it was extraordinary. I spoke for my book, I spoke to a number of participants there. And the first time I wrote in the Belgian press about different ways of democracy, I strongly referred to the South African and Congolese experiences. There's something deeply wrong with the idea that democracy is a European invention that needs to be exported to the other continents. Like we export an I- a piece of IKEA furniture. And when it's poorly assembled in Congo, it's because they didn't read the manual. I deeply resent that sort of understanding. There's so much valuable in African societies in terms of conflict resolution and listening to each other and talking to each other and taking your time to sit down together, despite your differences. Western democracies have become very quiet democracies. We have to vote in silence, which we do. And then we walk back to our computer screens And we scream in silence on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and any other social media. I mean, where is the rational debate, the respectful debate between citizens living in a democracy in the West? I don't see it. But I do see it now in those democracies that are successfully trying to work out citizens' assemblies. Ireland has changed its constitution, has made same-sex marriage and abortion possible, because they have been drafting a random sample of the Irish population by lot to give advice on what should be done with these sensitive topics. The German-speaking part of Belgium is now the first region in the world, it's a small entity, first place in the world where you have, next to the elected parliament, a senate, a virtuous, they call it the Citizens' Council, a permanent Citizens' Council, drafted by lot from the overall population, bringing together everyday citizens. I think it's wonderful. These are interesting experiences.
2: I have to say that personally, I look forward to the day when membership of the UK's House of Lords is chosen by lottery too. Although thinking about it, it's probably a pretty random selection of people already. Anyway, for me, one of the most startling realizations when I read your book Against Elections was how much democracy has evolved and continues to evolve, and how forms of democracy have been so different in practice over time, and how much elections have spread from a very small base since the Second World War. I think
0: what underlies my work on colonialism, which is historical work, which my writing and a lot of activism on new democracy is the very simple idea that everyday people have got something to say. If people are capable of telling their national history, which what I've done in my books on Congo and Indonesia, they're also capable of sharing their experiences of the present to shape policies for the future. And time and again... We see this confirmed in these deliberative processes that are now taking place. Imagine Brexit would have been decided through a citizens' assembly rather than a blunt referendum on a single round referendum with a simple majority. I think you might have gotten a more interesting output than what you got now, a more informed output. So yes, for me, there is an underlying link. The idea of citizens talking to each other is something I learned in an African context. The underlying philosophy, which I try to understand as I'm working through this, is that people really have got something to say.
1: You've been making provocative arguments for most of your career, which probably means that you get some pushback here and there. Is there anything you've learned from your critics? Is there anything that you've had to rethink and readjust as a result of criticisms?
0: I feel a bit funny to be framed as a provocative author because I don't consider myself to be. But obviously, it's not the author who decides whether his statements are considered provocative or not. Dissidence is the opinion of the outside world given to you. But I found it rather interesting to see that the ideas on new democracy, which I started putting forward 10 years ago, which were considered to be radical or lunatic or whatever, are now, I mean, the climate convention that took place in France last year on the behest of uh, President Macron is something I can take some credit for it as I had a chance to speak to Macron and gave him the idea. So what is considered as a strange, radical idea at one moment can become a common sense idea. This is very much in the line of what happened with the right for women to vote. When John Stuart Mill and other people started to, even before Mary Wollstonecraft started to suggesting this at the end of the 18th century, middle of the 19th century, it was considered to be an utterly, utterly radical idea that could not be taken seriously. But today, the idea that women should have the right to vote has become almost, we're not quite there yet, but almost universal. It's a long journey. We're in the process of democratizing democracy. Doing democracy through elections might seem obvious today. But if you go back, the word elections, the etymology of elections is closely linked to the word elite. Elite is what you get from organizing elections. If you look at the history, Aristotle and Rousseau and Montesquieu, they're all saying that elections are good for creating an aristocracy. And if you want to get a democracy, you should do lottery. This is how it was done in Athens. This is how it was done in Venice and in Florence for centuries. But ever since the French and the American Revolution, we've started to equate democracy with elections and today they have become almost synonymous. We've been doing democracy for 3000 years. We've only been doing it through elections for the past 200 years. And today we realize that organizing elections might not necessarily guarantee a democracy.
2: I have to say that was the most startling thing for me while reading your book Against Elections was how much democracy has evolved and how it has been seen differently and how much it in, even since the Second World War, how much it has spread compared to what one habitually thinks. But you're talking to two people who habitually write reports in which we very often refer to elections as being a way forward. And in certainly, yes.
1: I don't know that that's mostly what I write, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mostly tell people to stop shooting at each other, please.
2: <laughs> but as the communications director, I, I do actually, once I went through all the reports of crisis Group over a year, and I discovered that half of them were to do with elections or worries about elections or what should we do after the elections or how will they be conducted fairly or not. Since you have these original views, David, I was just wondering, what would you tell us to tell these countries in crisis instead of elections? What is the off-ramp from their conflicts that you can see that would be a way that we could start preparing? Is there anything so simple?
0: You this is a brilliant question. I wish I had a brilliant answer to it. My idea of combining elections with lottery is something I devised in the context of deep democracies in the West where educational levels are fairly high. I'm a little bit afraid of turning one model again into a universal model. This might become another form of evangelization, this time on lottery based democracies. But Congolese friends of mine who have read Against Elections, the book was translated in many languages and it was even read in the Eastern Congo, and they said, like, we should do this here as well. And I found this interesting, and I spoke to a number of activists, for instance, of La Lucha, which was this interesting movement in Eastern Congo claiming less corrupt form of democracy in their country, and they saw room for this. At the time being, I know of only one example where a citizens' assembly was organized on the global level, and it was called Worldwide Views. It took place in 2015, a couple of weeks before the COP21, the famous Climate Assembly in Paris, where the Paris Agreement was made. And that one took place on one day in 80 different countries, and it went across the globe. I mean, citizens were participating in Fiji, in Japan, parts of Asia also in Madagascar, in a number of African countries, etc., etc. So this showed, at least, that it was possible to organize this. And I know that recently, the UNDEF, United Nations Democracy Fund, the only UN body that has the word democracy in its name, it was organized by Kofi Annan, the late Kofi Annan, a few years ago did research on whether deliberative democracy which is a technical term for citizens' assemblies with participants drafted by a lot whether these were possible in the global south and they did projects i think in malaysia belize if i'm not mistaken and one south african country and the result was indeed even in these experimental settings in these three countries in the global south there was high potential for moving beyond elections
1: We are really, unfortunately, out of time, at least according to the clock here on my computer. I feel like we could keep going, and I'm really sorry to cut this off, but it's been really fascinating, far-ranging, and informative conversation. So, David, thank you so, so very much for joining us.
0: It's been a total pleasure for me, and thank you so much for inviting me.
1: So, listeners, I know you, like me, would like to keep having this conversation, one way or another. One way to do that is to learn more. So you can read David's books. I recommend that you find them in your local library or independent bookstore and have at it, apparently in the language of your choice as well. You can also follow David and his work on Facebook, which he says is his primary social media, and he is just David. Von Reybrook, his name on Facebook.
2: And if you want to see what we've been saying about Indonesia and uh, more recently, Democratic Republic of Congo, you just have to go to crisisgroup.org and you can go back to our work over the last decade and a half.
1: And to see how often we promote elections as a solution to conflict or as a cause of it or whatever else. You can uh, follow us at Crisis Group on Twitter. You can also follow Hugh and me. I'm at Olya Oliker and Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram where we are at Crisis Group.
2: And also please do feel free to tweet about the shows or to rate them, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. War and
1: Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check them out for a few of the others. As usual,
2: we'd like to give a big thank you to producer Bull Media and to our coordinator, Rebecca Zeruhun-Asifar. And also a big thanks to our new intern, Patricia Sande, who helped us prepare for this episode.
1: The biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners, and can't wait to chat to you again in just a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.